Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with author and activist Raheel Raza. During our conversation, Raheel talks about growing up in Pakistan as a Sunni Muslim. Her video, By the Numbers, which documents scientific polling data about the beliefs of Muslims around the world, and her work to try to modernize the Islamic world in relation to human rights and fundamental freedoms. Raheel, well, first of all, I just wanted to thank you for, for taking some time to uh, come on the, the show. It's, it's really good to have you here, and uh, welcome to The Exchange. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Mine as well. Um, so, like I think a lot of people in, in America, I first learned about your work rather recently when you were on the Bill Maher Show talking about uh, kind of the, the research that, that you've done and the work that your organizations are, are involved with. Um, I would love to get into that at some point during the conversation, but would, would love to maybe begin by learning a little bit uh, more about your background. I, I believe from what I've read about you that you were born in Pakistan and that you currently live in Canada. Uh, and I know that's a uh, long stretch of time that led you from one place to the other, but would love to learn a little bit more about uh, where you grew up and, and kind of the path that led you from, to move from, from Pakistan to, to Toronto. Yes, thank you for asking that. So, yes, I was born in uh, Pakistan. I got my uh, school and uh, college education there. Interestingly enough, I studied in a Catholic convent uh, school and college, uh, which people find uh, rather strange. But the Pakistan <laughs> that I grew up in, and, you know, this was the, uh, I'll age myself by saying that it's <laughs> in 60s and 70s, some part of it, um, was very different. Uh, it was a, a pluralistic country. It was uh, very gender-friendly. Uh, I grew up with a uh, type of Islam that was uh, culturally a Pakistani mm -hmm. Islam in the sense that we were influenced by, you know, South Asian culture. And there was a lot of freedom uh, for us as women and uh, as people of faith. I interacted with uh, people of many different faiths. And then in the 1970s, uh, we had a president called uh, General Ziaul Haq in Pakistan. And he was influenced by the Wahhabi ideology from Saudi Arabia. And this is about the same time that I met my husband, who is from a Shia family. I was born in a Sunni family. And uh, for the benefit of your listeners, uh, these are the two major denominations in Islam. Uh, Sunnis being the majority, Shias about 20%. And at that time, uh, again, it was a long time ago, it was uh, a no-no. So we decided that because of the growing influence of a, a harsh dogmatic, dogmatic ideology that was coming into Pakistan and the fact that we were uh, sort of a cross-cultural marriage, we left Pakistan. And after having lived in the Middle East for about eight years, we found our way to Canada because uh, this was a new welcoming country and uh, have been here ever since. Fascinating. And, and the, in, during your upbringing, it, it does sound like the Pakistan that exists today you know, has changed significantly from, from the, the Pakistan you grew up in. Um, what, what did religion mean to you when, when you were growing up? Obviously, it, it sounds like you, 
had interacted with a variety of different faiths, as you mentioned, growing up. But um, how important was religion to you? What did Islam mean to you? What does it mean to you today? Well, uh, religion at that time was never thrust down our throats. It was never imposed. And I can you know, speak for my husband as well when I say this. It was a very much a part of our life in the sense that, you know, we were part of a Muslim family, but it wasn't something that was constantly uh, imposed on us. Uh, you know, we, we practiced the five pillars of the faith. And even if we didn't, it was not the end of the world. As I said, you know, it was a very open society. I studied in a co-education school. And, you know, there was music and drama and art and culture. Now, the, the Islam that is practiced in Pakistan today, and I say this uh, with knowledge and feeling because I do travel back to my country of birth every year since I've been away because my family is still there. Uh, so the Islam that's practiced now is a very harsh, dogmatic, uh, one uh, vision Islam. It is an Islam in which there is no compromise. There is no acceptance of any other uh, way of following the path. It is the Wahhabi Salafi Islam for the Sunnis, and it is a Khomeiniist ideology for the Shias, which comes out of Iran. And in between the two, there is no space for anyone who wants to uh, perhaps, uh, you know, acknowledge any other way of uh, worship. I mean, for us, Islam was a way of worshipping the one creator, a monotheistic faith, and do good to humanity. And that's something that has stayed with me my entire life. The, you know, the fact that my my worship, my Islam is a very personal matter, but how I deal with others, uh, humanity, my interaction, my horizontal connection with the people, no matter who they are, no matter what faith they come from, is much more important in our daily lives. So I've been involved uh, my entire adult life in dialogue with people of other faiths because there's so much to learn, there's so much to understand. And the more we talk to each other, the more we understand each other, which is why this documentary uh, by the numbers, because people have been told not to have a conversation about Islam and Muslims. You know, this is the Islamophobia industry that is churning out this idea that you can't ask questions about Islam and Muslims. Of course you can. Mm -hmm. And everybody should be able to do so, especially in light of what is happening globally today. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to tell you that there is a global jihadist insurgency. Uh, they, the jihad, the radical extremist jihadists have declared war on the West. And I am part of the West. My children, my grandchildren are part of the West. We are Western Muslims. So it impacts us directly, which is why I dedicate my life to fighting this ideology, to fight for the soul of my faith as it used to be. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a good segue. That was one of the major things that I wanted to talk to you about. And, and as you had mentioned, I, I think this this was also something that had been articulated on your appearance on the Bill Maher show. But the, the By the Numbers documentary, I, I'm curious what the background story is to how it came about. And then if you could speak a little bit to what the point of the documentary is and what the information it reveals uh, to the general public, that would also be very helpful, too. Well, um, as you know, and as I mentioned, uh, I have been involved in this work to speak out against the jihadist ideology for you know almost three decades now, long before 9-11. And um, the, the, the work that my organization does, so we have an organization 
organization called the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow. I am president of the organization. And our uh, vision and, and mission is uh, to, to promote a better understanding of a softer, gentler understanding of Islam. What we were noticing after 9-11 is that political correctness has choked a conversation about Islam and Muslims. It was almost impossible for anyone who is not Muslim to ask a question. And also there was this deflection of the real issue by saying, well, you know, the extremists are very small in number. And I'm guilty of that as well, because right after 9-11, that is what I thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, the extremists are very small in number. But when you start doing the math, you realize that from 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, even a small number can be a frighteningly large number. And then we saw that the leaders of the free world, uh, the president of the United States, some of the leaders of the other Western countries were also not addressing the problem head on. So on the one hand, after 9-11, terrorist attacks are growing against the West. And on the other hand, the leadership, the political leadership is saying, well, you know, they're using all sorts of terminology. They're not calling it a radical Islamist ideology. And when I say this, it's important for me to differentiate for you between Islam as my spiritual journey, as I had mentioned, and Islam as the politicized ideology that is promoted by the extremists, the radicals, ISIS. Mm -hmm. So this is where we stand, We, you know, separating the two. So there was a Pew poll done uh, from uh, in about 67 Muslim countries, and that became the basis of this documentary by the numbers. Mm-hmm. I have been working with an organization called the Clarion Project. And two years ago, uh, they produced a documentary called Honor Diaries, which was the first ever expose of honor-based violence in Muslim-majority societies. Mm -hmm. And this documentary on her diaries just went absolutely globally viral. It won many awards. And the result of this was that uh, there were laws that changed. There were people who came out and started speaking about this. Activists were born. And so incredibly positive work happened. And Clarion Project then took on this idea of making a documentary with statistics. Mm -hmm. And when they uh, approached me to ask if I would narrate it, I said, yes, absolutely, I would. I worked up them with the the script so that it would be a Muslim voice. You know, it's very easy to disregard a voice from the outside. Mm -hmm. And that is, I mean, if you said something, you'd be called racist, you'd be called a bigot. But I have always believed that it's important for Muslims to be the frontline warriors in this battle for the soul of Islam. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I never have second thoughts about speaking out, uh, expressing what is the truth. I mean, people can see that it's happening, but when they hear the voice of Muslims who are reform-minded Muslims, who are fighting the same ideology, I think it gives them some hope. Mm -hmm. And therefore, this documentary came about by the numbers, which gives hard statistics, and it's very uh, difficult to... Uh, put down statistics. You know, they could be one or two percent off here or there, mm-hmm. but essentially, statistics are facts. Mm-hmm. And this started a conversation. Uh, you know that by the numbers has had more than three and a half million views. Wow. views. So you know, it's it's just people have picked it up. It doesn't matter who they are because it it gives them some data that they can start a conversation, and that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. And for, and for people that have not seen the documentary or, or are just hearing about this for the first time, 
what are some of the statistics or facts within that documentary that would be you know, potentially rather shocking or surprising to, to Westerners to learn about? So, you know, you have uh, an average of 53% of the populations of the countries surveyed uh, support Sharia, which is Islamic law as the law of the land. Now, the interesting thing about this uh, Pew uh, study is that while it gives percentages, it also gives actual numbers. So 53% translates into 469 million people. And that's a large number of people. So, uh, you know, an, an average, for example, an average of 27% of the total sample said that uh, this support the death penalty for people who leave Islam. Now, this translates into 237 million people. So this is where the shock is, because, um, you know, when people start hearing the numbers, they realize that there is a problem. There is a problem within the House of Islam. There is a problem in the Muslim world if you have a mindset. They, you have to understand that these are not people who are actually uh, uh, perpetuating this violence. But this is what they think. Mm -hmm. This is their thinking. This is what they believe. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in, in terms of honor-based violence, an average of 33% of the total samples surveyed was in favor of stoning unfaithful spouses. Mm. Now, this is 289 million people. Mm. So, you know, if I were uh, the, the, the people who are listening to this, I would definitely be concerned in starting a conversation. I mean, this is not for people to have a knee-jerk reaction. It's basically to tell them, hey, this is the problem and we need to start dealing with it. When and where do you see uh, strategic groups, law enforcement agencies, um, uh, the, the politicians discussing these issues. I mean, you know, for a short while, you have a, an extremist attack, a terrorist attack in Brussels. You know, for two weeks, that's all you see on media. Talking heads saying exactly the same things that they've been saying since after 9-11. Why do they hate us? What is the problem? Well, we've been telling them what the problem is mm. since I wrote my book, Their Jihad, Not My Jihad. 10 years ago, nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. And then everything goes silent again until the next attack and, and, and the next attack. So this is very frustrating for those of us who are working from the ground up. You know, we are not policymakers. We are not the lawmakers. We can't change the laws. We can, can only light a fire under the feet of the politicians and the religious leadership to actually do something. And within our own communities, we've started the Muslim reform movement, uh, which is to bring about change in the Muslim world, help Muslims come into the 21st century, not live in the 7th century, and you know actually implement some real changes. And how do you explain those sort of statistics? I mean, I think you're right that most Westerners are either unaware or wish those statistics were not true. How do you explain that many hundreds of millions of people? As you said, this is not necessarily, these aren't necessarily people that are about to go and become suicide bombers, but they have these firmly held beliefs that they're articulating in these polls. How do you explain that that many people, that those many people have those views in the 21st century? Well, the reason is that these views have been growing since a long time. There are governments and uh, there are organizations and people who have been perpetuating these beliefs. So, so there are today uh, three major influences on the Muslim world. One of them is the Wahhabi Salafi ideology, which comes 
from Saudi Arabia, backed by billions of petrodollars. Mm-hmm. The other one is Khomeiniism, which is basically out of Iran, also uh, supported by uh, large, large amounts of funding. And the third one is the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is an, you know, an entity that has existed for, uh, for a long time, since the early 1900s. So the point is that these entities have existed and they have been influencing the Muslim world, but because no one was talking about the issue, and they, or maybe let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they didn't know, but for the, at least for the last 30 years, we have been warning the West that there is a war against you. We have been warning the West about these ideologies. And I would say that I would give, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, security agencies enough benefit of the doubt to know, to say that they know that this problem exists. Mm. And it has been allowed to grow without actually doing something because you have to also appreciate that there is the connection of the oil. There is, you know, there are other connections that, uh, you know, we can't do anything about. So the world has looked looked the other way and allowed this to perpetuate. I mean, you take the United Nations Human Rights Council, for example. Uh, Look at the irony that Saudi Arabia, that has the worst record of human rights violations against its minorities and women, is heading the Human Rights Council. So why does the world sit back and allow this to happen? The OIC, which is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation that has 56 uh, Muslim Arab countries that hold the the UN more or less uh, in the palm of their hands. And, you know, why have they not taken any action when they saw the rise of extremism taking place in the Muslim world? So there is an entire generation of young people who have been brainwashed already, who have never seen anything different. And this is why these numbers are so high, because this ideology has been growing for a long time. It's not something that has happened overnight. It's been festering for a long time. And we, unfortunately, have been asleep at the wheel. And I think you're right that, you know, in terms of strategy, the the first thing that's important to do is to tell the truth. In terms of the second thing to do, which is creating a strategy to begin to try to curb people's beliefs, how, what in your experience are the mechanisms by which you can, you think, the Western world can begin to try to bring those hundreds of millions of people into the 21st century? What are the, what are the things that you've seen that you, you really think have a hope of, of potentially working? Well, first, uh, uh, first of all, we have to get rid of political correctness. You see, the problem of radical jihadist Islamist ideology is like a virus. It's like a cancer. Unless it is isolated and treated, it will spread through the whole body. And that's the best analogy that I can give you. But if you can't even articulate or, or diagnose the problem, then you're not going to be able to find a solution for it. Mm. Now, you know, the other issue of a knee-jerk reaction, like blaming Islam or defending Islam, is not the solution. Mm. I mean, when communism and fascism and Marxism were global threats, the world did get together to fight that. Fight that. Mm-hmm. So Islamism, which is political Islam, is similar to these ideologies. It is just like communism and fascism. It is violent. It is dangerous. Why doesn't the world get together to fight this? They, they are not even allowed to articulate the term Islamist ideology. I mean, we're still discussing and debating, well, should we call it Islamism or should we call it something else? So, you know, let's not use the word Islamism. The point is that the, the extremists are way ahead of us in terms of technology, in terms 
terms of what they have planned for the next 10 years. And here we are squabbling about, uh, you know, uh, terminology and just, just pity, pity little things when we should be having strategic meetings, strategic alliances. We should be all together looking at this as one of the biggest global threats and addressing it and, and finding solutions. One of the solutions is from within the Muslim world itself. So that silent majority that is uh, not violent, but is sort of sitting on the shelf, so to speak, which is the majority of Muslims who just want to have their nine to five jobs and, you know, go to work and lead a good life. We have to encourage them to speak out because by by being silent, I, I think that they are also then part of the problem because uh, if, if we look around, uh, we don't have the luxury of being silent anymore. And this is why our organization, Muslims Facing Tomorrow, plus the Muslim Reform Movement, are trying to convince that silent majority to be part of the solution, to create an alternate narrative. And also, as I said, when we talk about bringing Islam and Muslims into the 21st century, we need to take specific actions to reject some of the 7th century notions that exist among Muslims. And I'll give you a specific example. Mm -hmm. There is a concept of armed jihad. Mm -hmm. And this is something that existed in the 7th century because there were no boundaries, there were no nation states, uh, these were tribal societies, and um, armed jihad was a way of defending themselves. That's no longer a reality. So we want our, our religious leadership to denounce and condemn the concept of armed jihad and say that that existed in, in the 7th century it's no longer valid, so let's put that aside. You see, because the jihadis, ISIS, they all thrive on the concept of armed jihad. They believe that they are defending themselves and that the world is at war with them when it's exactly the opposite. And I think you're, you're, you're right that getting, getting voices out there to speak about modernizing Islam is one of the most important things that, that people in that world can be doing these days. And I think one other thing that has been surprising to a lot of Westerners is just the lack of seemingly moderate Muslim voices encouraging the sort of bringing of those people into the 21st century in the world today. And I'm wondering, from your experience, does it seem like the reason why there aren't more people speaking out as you are, that they're just simply afraid and they're living in countries where they very well may face violence if they do come out? What are the reasons why uh, there aren't more seemingly moderate Muslims that are speaking publicly about these sort of issues. Well, that, that is true, that in parts of the world where violence is uh, very common, they're afraid uh, for their lives. But then uh, Muslims living in the West really don't have an excuse not to speak out. But I'll go back to what I had said earlier, that even those Muslims who are the, uh, the majority, the silent Muslims, are in one way or the other still influenced by these ideologies. While they may not be um, Actively violent, but this few poll by the numbers will show you that their thinking is is still very orthodox. Their thinking is still very extreme, and they're sort of uh, sitting on the shelf. and And one of our fears is that uh, you know we need to to get to them before the extremists do. Uh, some of the youth in in that group, which is the silent majority, are like uh, you know sitting tinder boxes. They could uh, go aflame at any time. They're just sort of ready and waiting for, for a, a, a light to be given, a sign to be given, and they will explode because they have been 
been brainwashed into this victim ideology by the Islamist organizations. They have been brainwashed into believing that, uh, you know, that Muslim lands have been occupied and attacked. They have been brainwashed into a victim ideology, which makes them think that no matter what happens, they are the victims. Mm-hmm. So the the pumping of uh, this propaganda and this Islamophobia propaganda that if anyone speaks out, they're racist and, and bigoted, is what silences people. So many reasons why people are silent, but no excuse, no justification, in the sense that they simply must uh, be part of the solution or they remain part of the problem. And what we are doing with the Muslim Reform Movement is that we've put together a declaration which deals with gender, which deals with national security, secular governance, uh, governance, freedom of speech and religion. And we want to circulate this to the Muslim leadership and say, here is a declaration, uh, a way of bringing uh, Muslims into the 21st century, something that's within the framework of Islam, by the way. It's not something that's from the outside. So do you we accept it or not? One one other one other question that I, I was curious about. I, I think you you're sort of in a, in a unique position as someone who has lived both in the West and in a, a majority Muslim country. For Westerners that have never lived in uh, a Muslim country or an increasingly conservative mu- Muslim country, like you've uh, commented on, that Pakistan has sort of become, um, contrast the two cultures if you can. What, what are the some of the things that Westerners, people who live in Canada, the, the United States, the Western world, um, may just take for granted as a uh, part of modern life that, that really just is not necessarily a part of, of life in, in those other countries? Well, very uh, clearly from my perspective, it is uh, gender equality. Uh, this is, uh, you know, equal rights and dignity for all people, including minorities, and that's a, a support of the uh, human rights, uh, U- the United Nations Declaration of uh, Human Rights. The other thing which is very significant in some Muslim and majority societies as opposed to the West is the idea of individual freedom. Many of the societies in large parts of the Muslim world are still, their mindset is still tribal, which is why this uh, tribal uh, mentality creates many of the problems in honor-based societies. We uh, uphold and respect individual freedom. We have freedom of choice. We have freedom of press. We have freedom of voice. These are really important factors. But, you know, when we talk about freedom of voice, more and more that is being subsumed by the uh, pressure that is being put on society at large in the West by these Islamist organizations. Uh, You know, this curbing of um, freedom of uh, voice. uh, And and this is extreme, extremely important. Uh, The separation of church and state, the separation of mosque and state, for example. One of the reasons that we have such a huge problem in the Muslim world is because a political Islam, it is the politicization of a faith. And, you know, faith is not politics, politics is not faith, and the two need to have a separation. Mm-hmm. When they are intertwined so intrinsically, uh, it creates many of the problems that we see in countries that call themselves the Islamic Republic of Iran, for example, but a lot of the things that they are doing are not Islamic at all. We see this Pakistan where uh, you know, minorities are being persecuted, Christians are being persecuted, women are killed in the name of honor. In Saudi Arabia, uh, women are not allowed to drive. Um, you know, the, the uh, treatment of minorities is absolutely abhorrent, and the 
law does not support the voice of minorities and women in these countries. So secular law is extremely important. Uh, the idea that I, as a Muslim, am living in uh, Canada, if I have a need, I would rather go for towards secular law and not uh, want to have a second stream of law for those people who want to implement Sharia law. But here is where, where Western governments have also failed us in many ways, because in England, for example, you have 80 Sharia courts operating, and they're operating, obviously, with the blessing of the uh, UK government. Why is that even allowed? Mm -hmm. In Brussels, uh, we hear and we read that there were no-go zones. There were areas where Westerners would not go. Why on earth should something like be, that be allowed to happen mm -hmm. in a Western country uh, where... You know, these these issues of freedom uh, and, and our rights are so important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have deep questions that need to be asked on both sides. I, I'm curious, too, and I, I know a little bit about this from reading your biography, uh, but even though you live in Canada, I, I would imagine that there are people in power who know about your work and know about your organization, view you as very dangerous to their position of power or their, their religious ideology um, how do you feel about your safety? I, you, you do live in, in a Western country, as you mentioned, but um, ha have you experienced uh, threats of violence in the past? Is that something that, that concerns you at, at this point in your life? Well, um, I have received a death threat. I have, uh, I have a fatwa on my head. Um, I receive hate mails. But having said this, that is all a very small drop in the ocean of the work that we have to do. And I can't allow myself to be afraid. If I allow myself to be afraid, I won't be able to speak out and I won't be able to do what I have to do. And also, one of the tactics of the extremists is that they want to intimidate people uh, into uh, shutting up. And, uh, you know, I've come too far in my life where I don't need uh, to be popular. I need to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are two concepts in the Quran, which is my holy book, which are very important to me, and that those are truth and justice. Mm. So you can't have one without the other. So I decided that I want to keep on speaking the truth. I want to keep on exposing those who have maligned my faith and are making life difficult for the rest of the world. It's very simple. And um, I don't really think about uh, the fear part of it because it's not important enough. Last question. My family worries more for me. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Last question I want to ask you. For, for people that are, are listening to this and are learning about this information for the first time, are learning about you for the first time, are learning about your organization for the first time, um, what are the, the resources, the, the people, the websites, the organizations that um, people throughout the world, both both men and women who are interested in learning more about these topics. What, what sort of what sort of people should they be following online? What what kind of books should they be reading? What documentaries would you suggest to really delve into this in more depth? Well, if they go to our uh, website, which is www.muslimsfacingtomorrow.com, there are a lot of resources there. There's articles, there's events, there's videos that they can see. They can also go to the muslimreformmovement.org where they will see the declaration plus other resources and videos. And for the By the Numbers documentary, they can go to the website of the Clarion Project. Now, the Clarion Project is an organization that works towards exposing radical Islam. 
And this is where we work with them in that field. And they have interviews of of um, the Muslims who are bringing about change, of moderate, progressive, liberal Muslims, as well as a lot of material on radical Islam. So they can educate themselves. And it's extremely important that the masses do educate themselves because they need to understand that while there is the scourge of radical Islamist ideology, there are also those Muslims like me who are fighting the good fight, who are um, you know, speaking out, and we need the support of everyone because this is not a Muslim alone battle. You know, if you're American, this is an American issue. If, this, if, you're, if you're Canadian, this is a Canadian issue because in the end, when there is disaster, uh, when there is a terrorist attack, it, it, it does not differentiate between people. It impacts all of us. So we have said this, and we've actually put this out on our uh, websites, that we need the support of all individuals who are willing to, to help us without hate and bigotry, because that's not a solution. Mm-hmm. The solution has to come by a balanced conversation. Uh, and also in terms of you know the fact that we are, we are looking at an election right now, this is beyond partisan politics. This is, you know, uh, whether you're right or left or Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal, this is something that impacts each and every one of us. So we need to rise above all of this and deal with this as a global threat and work at finding solutions together. Well, Raheel, best of luck in, in all the work that you're doing. I really appreciate the time uh, for you coming on the show. It was it was a pleasure. And uh, best of luck with all the work. It was really, really great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Thank you.